If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Many times today you will find people that, though they do not want to identify with a church, they still consider themselves and even will tell you that they are a person of faith. So I, I don't go to church, I may not believe all the things you do, but, but you know, I still have faith, I'm a person of faith. And when we hear that, the question we should ask in is, great, faith in what? Faith in who? What, what kind of faith do you have? Because there's no such thing as an abstract faith. Faith by its very nature, by its definition, is trust in something. I have, I have faith that, that when I get up in the morning... Uh, my, 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 my feet are not going to fall out from under me and, and my face hit the ground, that uh, I'm still young enough and healthy enough that my legs work. And so I don't think too much about it. I just kind of throw the covers off, toss my legs over the side of the bed and, and get up and head to the bathroom and brush my teeth and get a shower and get going for the day. When we sit down in our car and we uh, turn the key, most of us, unless we've got an old junker, we don't think twice about it. We just trust that that engine is going to turn over and it's going to take us where we want to go. There is always an object to faith. So, so faith is, is never this kind of nebulous good feeling. It is always, is always in something. And what Luke has been showing us again and again and again and again as we've been working our way through this book is that Jesus should be the supreme object of our faith, that he is worthy of our faith. And this morning he's going to show us that again, but, but I want us to see something else. I want us to, to look at the story he's going to tell us from a slightly different angle, and the angle is this, is our faith worthy of Jesus? What I mean by that is, if Jesus is the worthy supreme object of our faith, is our faith a kind of faith that is worthy of him? Is it a faith that reveals Jesus is worthy of our faith, that he is supreme, that he is sovereign, that, that, that we can bank our entire lives on him? Or do we have a weak and paltry faith that gives evidence to the fact that we're, we're really not too sure about Jesus? We're, we're, we're pretty sure that he is everything that he says, but when it comes to the warp and woof, the, the, the everyday moments of our life, our faith is virtually non-existent. Because we're not actively seeking to trust this one. And whom we have said all the promises of God are fulfilled. So as we think about faith, the nature of faith, Jesus as the object of our faith, we want to do so by unpacking the, the rest of chapter 8 this morning, verses 40 through the end. Although we want to just begin by looking at the first few. Follow along as I read. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. This is the word of God. May he bless it today. The first thing that we see here in terms of the kind of faith that honors Jesus, the kind of faith that is that he is worthy of is this, that, that we should have a humble faith in him. We see here a picture of humble faith in Jesus. Now as we see that, let's set the, state, the context just a little bit. Let's think about where we have been in Luke's gospel and where we are now. Remember that we just saw uh, uh, a while back Jesus had left the region of Galilee. He had gotten to a boat. He had gone to the side. On the way there, uh, the disciples had got a weather lesson. 
uh, as the God of the universe was asleep in their boat and woke up and, and calmed the storm. And then they arrived at the, the other side of the lake in, the, in the, the country of the Gerizines. And immediately as Jesus got off the boat, he was confronted by this man possessed by many demons. And again, uh, the disciples got a lesson, this time not in, uh, not in uh, weather, but in agriculture, as uh, the demons were scared to death of Jesus. They begged not to be destroyed. Jesus knew it's not yet their time to be destroyed, so he granted the, rep- the request, and they sent them into the pigs, and 2,000 pigs went flying off the cliff. Now, remember the response. Not only was it a frightful and terrible thing to see the power of this man Jesus having freed this man that the community had completely given over to his seeming madness, who, who, who lived stark raving mad among the tombs. When they tried to shackle him and hold him down and, and, and help him, he would break the bonds and run out into the wilderness. But this guy is gone. There's no way he's ever coming back to reality. But, but Jesus just utters a word. And this man is back in his right mind. He's wearing clothes, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking up every word that he says. The people see that, and they are afraid. They also see the, the wrath, as it were, poured out against those demons, and the result that, that their herds are gone, their livelihood is gone. And even though it was inappropriate for Jews to, in fact, it was against the law, not just inappropriate, it was actively sinful for Jews to herd pigs. Their response is, Jesus, we're glad you showed up. We hope it was a nice vacation. Now please get out of Dodge. Go away from us. We're scared of you. Leave. We don't want you here. The only one that wanted Jesus there was the man who was healed, who, who begged to, to, to go with him. He says, well, if the town doesn't want you, I want you. Can I go with you? He said, no, you stay here and you tell people what happened. And so now Jesus gets back in the boat and he goes back to Galilee. And here, everybody is, is waiting to see him. Everybody loves Jesus here. They, they beg that he leave, and now they are glad that he came. It, the, the change in setting is staggering. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. They loved his teaching. They saw the healing. They experienced the grace of God in Jesus, and they could not wait till he came back. So the minute that boat started to come up to the shore, the minute they said, who's out there? And they said, you know, that looks like that guy, Peter, who's always spouting his mouth off. And if Peter's there, we know Jesus is with him. And so all the town begins to come down to the shore and to welcome him into this area. But there was one man in particular who was glad to see Jesus. Luke says it was a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Who was this man, Jairus? We're told he's a ruler of the synagogue. Well, what's a synagogue? Now we explain this a little bit months ago now, and it's going to continue to come up throughout Luke's gospel and throughout the New Testament. So let's, let's just pause for a minute and understand what is this thing called a synagogue. You remember that back in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel three pillars upon which their faith was built. First of all, he gave them a land in which to dwell. In fulfillment to the promise to Abraham, uh, a great nation was produced from him, from the, the child of promise, promise Isaac. And so they were given this promised land, the land of Israel, in which to dwell. Then they were given a law upon which they were to guide their lives. He gave them direction for how they should live before him as his people, and he is their God. And then when they broke that law, the third pillar that he gave them was a system of sacrifice. 
the tabernacle, it would eventually become the temple, priests that were able to make atonement for their sins so that this sinful people who would eventually, inevitably break the law still might dwell with and have a right relationship with the holy God who lived in their midst. Here was the problem though. The people loved the festivals. They loved the sacrifices, but they hated living according to God's law. So what Jesus says, uh, as he quotes back uh, the prophet Jeremiah, who's, who, and God condemning the people, he said, the temple has become like a robber's den. You go out and you commit the bank job, and then you run to hide out from the cops. And he says it's the same way with the people of Israel. They're going after other gods. They're living in sin. They think, but we'll just go to the temple and offer a sacrifice. It'll all be okay. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. The sacrifice is not being offered in faith. It needs to be offered with a heart in love and in worship for me. There can't be this division between what you say you believe and how you actually live your life. And God warns them and warns them and warns them and warns them and says, remember the covenant we have. If you continue to disobey, you will not experience life but death. And prophet after prophet after prophet, if you grid on a timeline, how the prophets come, uh, there's kind of like one here, one here, one here, that all of a sudden, there's overlapping until God says, we're done. You've disobeyed long enough, it's time for exile. I'm kicking you out of my land, and I'm taking away the sacrifices. All they have left is a memory of the law. That's all they've got left. And God, in his mercy, in about 70 years, starts bringing exiles back. He starts letting that next generation come back. They begin to go back into the cities and to rebuild. The temple is rebuilt. But here's the thing. Life in Israel is never the same. It had always been sitting around Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifice and the high priest was the most important leader. But now they've had the experience of exile. And so now life in Israel has become decentralized. Although they still go for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, once a year and some other, some other feasts and sacrifices. Now it's the local community that becomes the most important. And because God had said, you're not living according to the law, they said, well, maybe we need to know the law better. So what they develop are these synagogues, very similar to a modern-day church in some ways, places where the law could be read publicly, and it could be taught in its application to the people. So you see what happened. It was originally, the emphasis was over here in Jerusalem, the sacrifices, and now the emphasis had shifted to the moral and ethical life of the people that had been lacking before. Here was the problem, though. God had never ordained the scribe as an office. That was the job of the priest to teach the people. And what you had were all of these ideas, all of these theories about how to interpret the law. And so you have these different teachers who are prominent and respected, and this teacher over here, and this teacher over here, and you have these Pharisees now, lay people, they have no official authority in Israel, but they set themselves up as, as the supreme example of righteous and moral living, and what they do is not simply try to keep the law, they also add their own laws to the law to help them keep the law. And that becomes elevated in status in some people's minds that you have the law of God, you have the, the rules and the laws of the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're equal. And Jesus comes along and says, no, they're just the traditions of men. You should just be keeping the law. So you have these local synagogues where the Jews would congregate for worship, for instruction. And this was run by this council of elders of which Jairus is a member. 
In fact, it says he is a ruler. That, that might be he's just one of the many, or it might be that he is, he is the, the designated kind of overseer of the synagogue at that time. It was rotated. So he would have been responsible for organizing the readings and the teachings and the services. Jairus was a religious Jewish leader in that community. You say, now why is all that important? It's important for two things, for two reasons. First of all, first of all, though you may not understand it, and I'll explain it to you, it shows the historical reliability of Luke as an ancient document. Say, how, how do we get that? How, how do we get that from, from, from Jairus, a Jewish leader coming to Jesus? Simply this. The time that Luke is writing this, the Jews are at the throats of the Christians. They hate them. They're heretics. They're trying to, to, to exterminate them and wipe them out. And in any other document in the world, if you had a situation like that in ancient Rome, the Jews would have been vilified in the New Testament. If it was just a man-made document, they would have taken out their wrath on the Jews and shown them to be evil, wicked men and women, and we don't want to have anything to do with them. But here's the reality. Luke doesn't have an axe to grind. Luke is simply there to show history, to say, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus does as the Savior of the world. And what we see is the reality is that, though there were a lot of the Jews who hated Christians, there were also a lot that believed there were a lot of Pharisees who repented and believed. There were a lot of high priests who repented and believed and were, in fact, leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And so here, Luke is not trying to play a game. He's not trying to set an agenda. He is showing the reality because here's what Luke knows. He can't write fiction about Jesus better than the truth about Jesus. He can't make up a story any better than the one that God himself has visibly put on display for all the world to see. That's the first thing it does. But secondly, understanding who Jairus is helps us to better understand faith. It helps us to better understand faith. Faith is humble by its very essence. It's not hard to imagine that Jairus did not spend much time running around town and sitting at people's feet in the dirt. I mean, this is not only a first century man, he was a religious leader which meant dignified. And dignified not in the, the kind of modern bad sense of overly stuffy or arrogant, but there was a certain kind of decorum with which he held himself. It might be today as you think about politicians or, or CEOs of companies, people that, that wear suits every day and don't think anything about it. You're not seeing them run down the streets or kneel down in the dirt. You know what I'm saying? Or in New York City streets. The build the trash and everything else. That's just not, that's not what they do. And yet here, he doesn't care about any of that at the moment. He doesn't care about any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't care about decorum. He doesn't care about anything. Here's what he cares about. I have an only daughter who is dying. And yes, this peasant, this, this man from a backwater part of our country, this son of a carpenter, I believe he can heal her. So it doesn't matter what the town thinks. It doesn't matter of my reputation. It doesn't matter of decorum. I am going to humble myself and acknowledge his superiority, to acknowledge his authority, to acknowledge his power, so that he might graciously heal my daughter. Jairus is desperate for him to come. He has tried everything. Surely he's tried everything for his daughter and nothing has worked. He sees her at home probably that day. He's seen her losing color on her skin. He has seen her breathing being labored. Perhaps she's even at this point too weak to eat. He is a man living in the first century well acquainted with death. He knows what it looks like when it's coming. And Jesus is now the only hope for his daughter. He's literally begging at Jesus' feet. He is pleading. Jesus, please come. She... She's the only child I have. She, she's, she's my daughter. Please come and heal her. Help her, please. 
even though Jairus knew much less then about Jesus than we do now, it is still a picture of faith. True faith is always humble before Jesus. True faith always acknowledges that Jesus is superior. It banks everything on Him. Everything on Him. Mark this well. If your faith is a kind of faith that is the opposite of Jairus' faith, if it is prideful, if it is assertive, if it acts as if you're doing Jesus a favor by believing in Him, then you don't have true faith. You don't have true faith in Jesus. You say, well, how intolerant is that? Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be intolerant. I'm trying to help you. Jesus doesn't need your faith. He doesn't receive more power and more praise because you put your faith in Him. You need Him. And true faith acknowledges that humbly before Him. Jairus comes pleading for Jesus' help and notice that Jesus goes with him. Jesus is glad to go with this man who has displayed publicly, humbly, his desperate need of Jesus. But Jesus' progress is halted. Look at verse 42. As Jesus went with Jairus, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. We saw humble faith in Jesus. Here, secondly, we want to see an expression of bold faith in Jesus. Bold faith in Jesus. I can only imagine the elation that that father felt when Jesus agreed to go with him and go see his daughter. I mean, that the people are there. Jesus, how long are you going to be in town? You know, do you, do you want to come to my house? Uh, you know, let, you know let, let, let's put on a big feast. And, and, and this man just, just throws himself in the midst of all that at his feet and begs, please come. And Jesus just says, okay, let, let's go. And you just imagine tears of joy streaming from his face. They begin to go. People are like, wait a minute. We, we want to see Jesus too. So the crowd just goes, wait, 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 wait. And, and, and slowly everything is slowed down. And you can imagine uh, Jairus saying, come on, really? I mean, you don't understand. She is really sick. She really needs to see you. And yet the crowd is pressing in harder and harder and harder. I don't think it's like a mob thing, you know, where it's like going crazy and, ah, you're taking Jesus away. No, I think it's much more like, you know, a Super Bowl. And and the team has won and and, and everybody is just is leaving. The guys that were just on the bench the whole game, the whole season, they're running out and they're wanting to slap the quarterback on the back because the team won. You know what I'm talking about? Everybody's trying to get there. Just say, hey, good job, good job. And that guy's like, who are you? Third string? I don't know his name. But but everybody is there like, we love Jesus, we love Jesus. And yet Jairus is here thinking, no, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to go. And in the midst of all that, here's this other woman. Luke says that she was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Here's a woman who had spent the last 12 years in misery. Not just because of the physical ailment. Not, not simply because of the physicality of the hemorrhage. But remember who she is and where she lives. This is a Jewish woman living under the law of Moses. Remember back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the leper? Remember we saw from Leviticus and from Numbers? Numbers 5 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. The people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. 
So where does this woman live? Outside the city, outside the camp. That means until this discharge went away, there was no temple, there was no synagogue, there was no worship, there was no family. Now, once the discharge cleared up, she could offer a sacrifice, go through a period of ritual cleansing by the priest and be entered back into the fellowship of the community. But here's the problem. It's an ongoing issue for her. For 12 years, she has been cut off from the community of her people. She's been in desperate, desperate uh, need of healing. She's gone to doctors. She spent all the money she has, which implies that at one time, she wasn't poor, and now she is poor. You know, she didn't just throw two mites at a doctor and say, hey, can you look at something? The implication is she's given, and she's given, and she's given, and she's given. She's gotten second, and third, and fourth, and fifth opinions, and no one can help. And then from the edges of the community that day, she saw the crowds at the shore, and she saw Jesus, and she thought, this man can help. This man can help. So what does she do? Her faith leads her to act boldly. Despite the fact she isn't supposed to be in the community, she's not supposed to be touching anyone lest they also become ritually unclean and defiled. Here she is in the midst of the crowd, and as they are pressing into Jesus, she is pressing in through the crowd. She she is nudging elbows and shoulders. She is wiggling through. All she can think of is, I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. And we don't know if it's because she stumbles, she's falls, she's been knocked down, she's bowing in worship. All we know is she comes up and all she does is grab the very tassels at the bottom of the hem of his robe. And she is healed. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Now in any other context, the person she touched again, would have been made ceremonial unclean. They would have gone outside the camp and had to have been purified by the priest. But notice, this is Jesus. So when she touches him, he's not made unclean. The opposite happens. In fact, more than that, the unbelievable happens. She experiences a total cleansing of her uncleanness. But notice, Jesus stops. He, he's been walking with Jairus and the crowd has kind of slowed him down and all of a sudden he stops and he turns around. And what does he say? Verse 45. Who is it that touched me? When all denied it, everyone around, we didn't do it, we didn't do it. Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus, come on, give me a break. There's like 50 people around us. They're all touching you and bumping into you just like they're doing to us. And it's getting kind of annoying. Let's get out of here and get on to Jared's house. There's a little girl that's sick. Jesus, what are you worried about someone touching you for? But Jesus said, someone did touch me. Someone touched me, verse 46, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now you need to understand, there's a way to read this that's right and a way to read this that's wrong. The wrong way to read this is if Jesus is worried here. As if he somehow somehow has, like in all the movies and and all the television shows, a limited supply of power and he's worried because he didn't authorize its use. I lost power. The batteries are going dead. I gotta get out of here. I gotta go recharge. Okay, that, that's not how we should think about Jesus here. Okay? In fact, what he's doing, the reason why he stops, the reason why he asks, who touched me? It's, it's, it's not about trying to, to reconcile uh, anything in his mind or, or console any worry. It's in fact so that he can continue to minister to this woman. There is an intentionality here, there is a purpose in his stopping. She knows she's been found out at this point. 
At first, notice it said in verse 45, all denied it. Everybody said, well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Jesus says, look, I know someone touched me because I felt the power go. I felt the healing that took place in that person's life. And so she knows she can't get away. She, she, she can't slink and go hide. She's been found out. So, just as she boldly worked her way through the crowds to get to Jesus, now she boldly acknowledges herself in the midst of the crowd. Verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Notice two things here that Jesus does. First, he exercises pastoral care by bringing her out of the shadows. She has been outside the camp, outside the community. She says that, that, that she's no longer hidden. She, she can't hide. I imagine she, she, she probably put a, a little hood up or, or, or pulled her scarf down a little bit because people would have recognized her. And she don't want to be recognized. She just wanted to get through those crowds, get healed, and she was ready to just head right back out. She's obviously scared. It says that she is trembling and falls down before Jesus. It's, she, it's almost like she's confessing a sin to him. I've done something wrong. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've not done anything wrong. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, all the people say, given the issue she has, it's in all likelihood she is older than Jesus, significantly older, 10 to 15 years older. But notice he calls her daughter. Why? Because he is saying, he is saying, just like all healing, like all salvation that comes, you are now part of the family and of God in the way that you were not a part of before. For the last 12 years, she has experienced rejection, no family, no friends, no one to touch her or hold her. And now Jesus uses this term of affection for her, signaling, you are not alone anymore. He's not calling her out to humiliate her, but to display God's love for her. It's a beautiful thing, but there's more. Jesus also exercises pastoral care by clarifying her theology. He wants to clarify her theology. Mark tells us uh, in his account, which you can read later in chapter 5, he tells us that the woman thought she would be healed if she touched his clothes. So there is a superstition she, she, that is mixed with her true, bold faith. And Jesus wants to clear that out like, like, like old nasty brush. Let's pull out these thorn bushes so that you can have a clean, pure faith. Remember Peter's question? So many people have been touching you, Jesus. What difference does it make? Here's the difference it makes. Only one of them went away healed. What? Why her? All these people would have been touching Jesus, uh, you know, not like, you know, poking him in the eye or anything, but, but they would have been close, bumping into him, hugging on him. Uh, they might have been greeting him with a kiss. All these people are physically interacting with Jesus, but only one woman caused him to stop and say, what happened? Who was that? Someone just got healed. Why? Why? And Jesus explains, it was her faith. It was her faith. Now again, faith is not mystical. It's not magical. It's not like a talisman. It's not just, well, I just believe something and something good is going to happen. No, no, no. The power was in Jesus for healing. The power was not in the faith. Faith is not a thing that operates that way. It is not a power or a substance. It is a conduit. It is a means by which we... Throw a ladder up, as it were, to heaven called faith, and God sends down the grace. God sends down the healing. God sends down the salvation. So faith doesn't heal. Jesus heals. Jesus saves. But he does it by faith. And that's why she was healed, he says. All these other people are there. They're happy to see me. But she really had faith in me. And that's the reason why she experienced the healing. 
The point is, it's not simply enough to be around Jesus, like showing up to church. It's not simply enough to think nice things about Jesus. Well, you know, I, I don't, I'm a person of faith. No, salvation only comes to those who actively put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His power to cleanse you from all your sin and unrighteousness is there, infinitely there. It will never run out. But it only comes to those who trust Jesus to save them. Here such faith is seen for its boldness. Here's a woman who's not only comes um, to, to, to Jesus to be healed boldly, but she also confesses that she has come to Jesus for healing boldly. I just read yesterday, the average life, listen to this, the average life expectancy of a public Christian in Afghanistan. Seven days. Seven days, a week if you go public with your Christian faith in Afghanistan, that's how long you have before someone takes you out. What's the average life expectancy of a Christian in the United States? Oh yeah, that's right. It's the same as everybody else. It's easy to be bold here compared to other places. And yet we are some of the most timid Christians in the world. Some of the most timid Christians in the world. We're scared. We come like this woman for healing. We come to be saved. You say, how do you keep, why do you keep going back and forth? Because the word's the same. It's sozo in the Greek. Which Paul can say, sozo by grace. And here Luke can say she was sozoed by faith. Healed, saved. You're supposed to see that this is a picture here. Yes, Jesus really healed this woman. But he also granted salvation, just like he does for us. Like this woman, we come to Jesus for healing, for salvation. But then we refuse to stand out among the crowd and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. I'm not ashamed to tell you that I came to Jesus for healing and He healed. That's our problem. That's our problem in this country. And yet surely if this woman, in this context and in this culture, can display a bold faith, so can we. Can't we? Surely we can cross the pain line of fear when it comes to something so minimal in this country. But what if we're afraid? How do we, how do we act past the fear? How, I mean, the, the reality is, I mean, you've, you've all heard this, courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving past the fear, moving through the fear. It's acting despite the fear. It's the same way with our boldness in the faith. We're not telling you don't be afraid of them. We're saying when fear comes up, Act anyway. Act anyway. The question is, how can we do that? Well, here's the last thing that we see. We've seen a picture of humble faith and a bold faith, and now Jesus calls us to a fearless faith. We should have fearless faith in Jesus. Remember again, who is waiting in the midst of all this? Who is watching all this thinking, we need to hurry, we need to hurry. Perhaps he's astonished at the scene of what happened, he's trying to figure it out, but then he hears Jesus say, daughter, your faith has made you well go in peace. And he thinks, my daughter! She's still waiting. She's still sick. Jesus, we have to go. And about that time, verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your, your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. I want you to imagine the emotional pendulum that Jairus just went on. He, he's been at the, at the height of heights and, and hope and joy because Jesus is coming to his house to heal his daughter. And now he has swung to the complete opposite end. Your daughter is dead. It's too late. And, and I, I just imagine hearing something like that myself and, and your face betraying immediately the range of emotions that you're feeling as you begin to twist and contort, trying to hold back and cough back the tears and sobbing that are welling up within you. And yet Jesus hears what is just said and he turns and he says, he says, no, 
No, verse, verse 50. Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Then Luke goes on and tells us, When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. So, so he's got the crowd's interest now. They stand there, they, they saw the healing, now they've heard she's dead, and Jesus says, no, no, she's not dead. Let's go, she's going to be fine. So the crowd goes, he says, stop, you all don't need to be in there. Mom, Dad, Peter, James, and John, let's go. All were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Isn't it interesting how so confident the crowds were that Jesus could heal the girl when she was so sick that she was near death, but the moment she actually dies, the confidence goes away. But Jesus says, do not fear. Jesus is saying to Jairus, you don't need to lose hope. You don't need to fear the worst. Just believe because I'm here with you. When they get to the house, the mourning has already begun. The people of the town have come to weep with those who are weeping, namely Jairus and his wife. And Jesus comes in and tells them to stop weeping. Now let's imagine, put it in the modern day context, you're in a funeral. And the family is sobbing. Friends are crying. People that have come with friends or family who have no idea who this person is in the casket. They've never seen them before. They, they, they feel the weight of, of mourning and sorrow that is going on. And they begin to cry. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I don't know this person from Adam or Eve. And I'm sitting at the funeral and I see these, these little kids who have lost their, their, their great-grandparents or their grandparents or an aunt or beloved uncle or, 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 or husband and spouse sitting there. And I start getting emotional too. And Jesus, and imagine you're sitting at a funeral like that and someone, a, a preacher, just a, just a Joe Blow guy, jeans and t-shirt comes in and says, stop weeping, they're just asleep. Now after the, the initial shock of the audacity of such a man to say that. You're going to do one of two things. You're either going to, you're going to get really mad and grab him by the scruff of the neck and throw him out of the funeral home or you're just going to laugh your head off an emotional release at the stupidity of such a thing being said. Look at this idiot. This girl is clearly dead. That's what they're thinking. That's why they're laughing. But mark this down. Jesus is no idiot. You can tweet that later today. Pastor John said, Jesus is no idiot. He knows what death looks like. It's not just like, well, well, he can't tell she's dead. He's not close enough. No, he is the creator of the universe. He knows what death looks like better than anybody else. Because death is an unnatural consequence of sin, a stain on his once perfect creation. And he knows, though, however, unlike anyone else, this doesn't have to be the end of her life. So he takes the mother and Jairus and the three and they go in and they're with this little girl. And I want you to imagine Jairus all of a sudden because he's heard she's dead. He's, he's, he's walked with a heavy heart all the way to his home. He's heard again from the crowds, she's dead. But now he actually sees her. He, he sees her lifeless body laid out on the bed. Here, here she is, his precious, precious girl, his one and only daughter, his one and only child. And she's dead. Imagine that just the lump that would be in his throat like I already have now thinking about this. His struggle between grief and fear and Jesus' command, don't, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Simply believe. And then suddenly he's reminded as Jesus is standing there. As he, he kneels down in verse 54, we read, taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. 
Verse 55. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus takes this little girl by the hand, just like the girl with the hemorrhage. What did we see from Numbers 5? He should have been made unclean. Immediately, oh, you got to go see the priest. You're done. You're done. You just touched a dead body. Can't do that according to the law of Moses. But the uncleanness of death does not come to Jesus. Quite the opposite. He gives life to her who is dead. He takes this little girl by the hand just like a father or an older brother would, would say here. Come on, it's time to wake up. I mean, that's how he's talking to her. It's like, she's, it's like it's morning, she's had a nap time. Think about all the times I've been in my kid's room and I've sat down on their beds and I've rubbed their back and said, come on, it's time to get up. Or I've been down and peeked through the holes of Ellie's uh, playpen and crib and say, come on, it's time to get up, Dad, Daddy's here. I think about that and I get emotional because Jesus is saying for him, it's that simple to give new life. It's that simple to take that which is dead and gone and hopeless and bring hope back to it, to restore it, and to bring life again. It's that simple for him to reverse death. And what's amazing in that is not just that he has that kind of power, but he has that kind of power and he is willing to give it to sinners like you and like me who don't deserve it. You have to think about this. Death is the natural consequence of our sin. We are sinful people, so we sin, and so we deserve death. It is the final enemy that none of us can defeat. It is the one thing we all fear the most. Not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones and our family and our friends as well. It's terrible, it's undignified, we fear it, and we can't do anything about it. But Jesus can. It's not final for him. For Jesus, death is little more than sleeping. And here is the promise of that power. Jairus' daughter was only resuscitated. She she doesn't stay alive forever. She comes back to life and one day she's going to die again a natural death. But Jesus promises that when we trust to save him, though we die, we will live again, not just a resuscitated death, but a glorified resurrection where we will never die again. He promises that we not only get new spiritual life now, but one day Jesus will return And he will call down from the heavens, get up my little children and millions upon millions of believers from the beginning of time who have put their faith in God and his promises will be brought back to life and will be given new bodies that they might live forever in heaven with him. And Jesus says that knowing that reality, knowing that the greatest enemy you will ever face, death itself, has been defeated by him because he has a power and authority over it, that should make you fearless in this life. It should make you fearless in this life. You say, well, how is it possible that Jesus can bring someone back to life? How can he promise that we will be resurrected from the dead one day? Just like the woman with an open and ongoing hemorrhage, just like the sacrifices offered for the people in Jerusalem, Jesus was once taken outside the camp to die. Why? Not because of his own sins, but because of the sins of others. He went outside the camp because he was a reproach before God. He was, he was considered unclean. For our sins by God. And there he made atonement for us, satisfying God's wrath. He was treated like a sinful man so that sinful men could be forgiven. God's one and only son willingly gave up his life that we might live. He tasted death for all, but then he beat death. 
And on the third day, He rose back to life as the, as the morning sun is coming over the horizon. So life comes back into the, the slain body of the Son of God. Not just temporary life, not just resuscitated life, resurrection life, glorified life. Now the physicality of His body matches the glory of His soul as the eternal God. Unlike Jairus' daughter, Jesus will never die again. He was raised to reign as the conqueror of sin and death so that He could be the one in whom we put our faith that we might receive the salvation of God. For the one who has faith in Jesus, death is only like sleeping. So from this passage we have seen Jesus is the Savior who is willing and able to receive desperate people in need like Jairus. Jesus is the Savior who is willing and able to cleanse us from our sins like the sick woman. Jesus is the Savior who is willing and able to give new life, spiritual life with God, but also resurrection life for eternity. Therefore, therefore, when we put our confidence in that kind of Savior, our faith should be humble, it should be bold, and it should be fearless as we seek to serve Him and one another and live for the glory of God alone. Father, this is our prayer this morning as we see the examples that we have here, that we ourselves would imitate them because of the immensity of what Christ has done for us. That we would live with a faith that is humble and bold and fearless. God, only you can produce this within us by your grace. We pray that you would cultivate that, that you would grow it as we are reminded again and again and again that Jesus is worthy of that kind of faith. God, we ask this in his name. Amen. In response to the message this morning,